Last week we began our orientation on Hermetic Philosophy, and as the subject indicates, we must continue this orientation this evening. While it may seem that our development will be essentially historical, this is not the full intent of our present approach. Actually, history in this case is rich with overtones and implications of dynamic philosophical importance. We are not interested merely in digging into the past for the sake of unearthing the intellectual artifacts of our ancestors. We are, however, mindful of the living content of things, which is timeless and has continuing vitality for us. I had a letter through the mail today, a very highly confused person. This person would not have been confused had they possessed any adequate integration around the essential substance of the beliefs with which they were concerned. The living person today, in the search for his own believing, finds it very important to defend values and to protect himself against the superficial attitudes and false interpretations which are so common in relation to great systems of religion and philosophy. We have to have a certain amount of factual background. Lacking in this, we are unable to orient and integrate or to keep our minds clear in our present thinking. So if we sharpen our thinking a little, it will do us no harm in our daily living, where we have been inclined <coughs> to save the mental instrument, protect it from labor, and come too quickly into easy believing, in which there is never any really adequate reward. We have taken this evening three parallel systems for consideration. The Hermetic philosophy, the Gnostic philosophy, and the Neoplatonic philosophy. Now, it's more than a coincidence that these should all have flourished in Alexandria in the opening years of the Christian era. It is also not a coincidence that all of these were closely involved in the rise of Christianity. Nor is it by any means accidental that in a strange way, as St. Augustine points out, these three sects were in large measure responsible for Christianity. Now, this does not mean he did not certainly intend to imply that Christianity had merely copied these doctrines. Rather, that Christianity, confronted by three schools of the magnitude of these, was forced to make very definite plans of its own. It was forced to overcome at an early date as many of the divisions within its own structure as possible. It required a united front against a world that was not ignorant, not stupid, and not gullible. It therefore was a challenge, and it was this tremendous challenge that to a large measure resulted in the final Council of Nicaea and the Christianizing of the Western Roman Empire. It had not, had it not been for these sects, it is very likely that Christianity might have dissolved in its own internal discourse. 
But confronted by these large enemies, it gathered its resources, defined its position ever more clearly, and finally came to a condition of ascendancy. Thus they formed the adversary, which sharpened the wits of the early Christian fathers and caused them to give much more scholarly attention to their own doctrines than might have been their original inclination. So we have these three schools, and the order of them we should also consider. Uh, for antiquity, the Hermetic philosophy was probably slightly the elder. In other words, it probably arose slightly earlier than Christianity, 100, 200 years, possibly 300. It also extended downward through the Christian era and down to the 4th or 5th centuries A.D. The second uh, in historical descent was Gnosticism, uh, which belongs to the first Christian century primarily. It arose probably not later than A.D. 30 and continued to exercise a considerable influence down to also to the 5th century A.D. The third of this group was Neoplatonism, which probably arose in the latter part of the 2nd and probably somewhat in the early part of the 3rd century A.D., and continued to exercise considerable influence until the 5th century. Thus, these three organizations uh, coexisted with the early Christian development. And by the nature of their teachings, this coexistence was again more than coincidental. For when we study these three systems, we observe marked parallels among themselves and to Christianity. The question as to who borrowed from who has always been a moot one, and we will not even attempt to explain and interpret it. We can only say that these persons lived together, that they lived in speaking distance of each other, and that they were united by a common tongue. We know, for example, that St. Augustine was highly conversant with Neoplatonism, and apparently did not hold it in essential disregard, although he publicly criticized it on some occasions. Actually, a large part of his own philosophy was certainly influenced by Neoplatonic thought. Trying to analyze the structure of these three uh, uh, non-Christian groups to determine their essential keynote, what was the essential difference between them? The more you read about them, the less difference you observe, until a number of writers have practically given up in despair any effort to distinguish their essential doctrines. These doctrines are so close uh, that they are regarded almost as identical. Actually, they are not identical, because each presents a particular perspective about something uh, in which they all have a common interest. The principal foundation of the Hermetic arts must be regarded as scientific. Hermetism, or Hermetic philosophy, was a science. And as it developed, it developed strongly along scientific lines, until in the Middle Ages, Hermetic philosophy became the synonym of chemistry. It was based upon a series of exact procedures. It was mathematical and it made very little use of factors uh, beyond the comprehension of the average person, although it did have certain abstract teachings. These abstract teachings, like Buddhism and Confucianism, were rooted in natural phenomena. 
They were rooted in familiar things, in common everyday occurrences. In this, the Hermetic school borrowed considerably from the Egyptian. For while the Egyptian had a very deep mysticism, his mysticism was always clothed in the familiar forms of natural phenomena. His uh, afterworld state, or after death state, for example, the Elysian Fields. Uh, well, this paradise was very similar to the Delta of the Nile. In fact, there was very little difference. Here, the celestial blessed did not rest forever, but had their proper cattle and plowed their fields just as they did on earth. The only thing is that the difference between the terrestrial Nile and the celestial Nile was essentially that the celestial Nile never failed, whereas the terrestrial Nile sometimes did not rise appropriately and there could be famines in the land. But the heavenly streams, uh, sustained and protected by the gods, meant forever that there would be prosperity in the, in the blessed world and that everyone would have enough to eat, everyone would enjoy the advantages of good living. Now, there's no doubt that the Egyptian priests and philosophers went beyond this point. But it is also an evident part of the daily religion of the people. And Hermetic philosophy has a relation to this. It also went far beyond materialism. But it never went beyond the concept of a universal law. It never transcended the idea that divine procedures were mathematical. That cause and effect were inevitable. That uh, the progress of the human being came through the mastery of certain sciences. And of course, the science of sciences was that of life itself. Therefore, Hermetic philosophy emphasized life as an exact science. A science of human generation and regeneration. A science of human perfection. And the Hermetists believed and affirmed that the keys to this science, like the advanced formulas of mathematics, were reserved to certain persons who advanced themselves uh, in these subjects and have become entitled to receive the great instruction. Thus, everything moved forward on a very orderly procedure. The Hermetic School was a kind of university in which the students advanced from grade to grade according to their abilities. This was a strong point in favor of the school, but also the secret of its ultimate dissolution. The average human being, having reached mature years, does not want to go to school. He does not want a way of life that is dominated by a procedure of constant learning. He feels when he has reached a certain degree of intelligence that he should go out and enjoy himself. Therefore, the hermetic science was essentially restricted to those of scientific instinct, not necessarily of scientific attainment. But individuals who like to approach life as an exact problem, a mystery to be solved by the instruments of science. And we must not overlook the fact that the instruments of science available in those days were better than we believe or generally accept. We were not uh, living in as dark a time as the modern historian would depict. The uh, hermetic philosopher had many instruments. He had already received the great arts and sciences of Greece and Egypt. He was already a master of liberal arts. He already had many instruments by means of which he could attain his end. But there was something much in uh, to recall to us the great architects of the ancient world. 
in the Hermetic school. These architects fashioned magnificent structures. A Hermetic philosophy was a concept of a magnificent structure built according to laws, built like a vast college or school, a school of life from which no one could graduate without attaining perfection, a school that challenged the person from the cradle to the grave, a school in which he must continue to learn till the day he died. Obviously, this type of thinking would not appeal strongly to the shopkeeper, the merchant, the average person whose interest in science was largely utilitarian, whose knowledge of architecture was exhausted in familiarizing himself with the house in which he lived. This type of thinking, therefore, did not have glamour. It did not have the magnetic appeal of mystery, finally, because the Hermetic school was constantly declaring that there was no mystery in mysticism, that mystery was an illusion, that actually what we call mysterious is nothing but that part of the universe about which we are ignorant, that there can be no real mysteries, and the person growing up is not a magician, not a wonder worker, he is a scientist, gradually familiarizing himself with laws and keeping them and gradually developing a great ethical, spiritual code based upon these laws. Therefore, actually, in a sense, uh, an exact way of life, built upon observation, experimentation, reflection, and tradition. As inheriting the sciences of ancient Egypt, the Hermetic philosophers, therefore, thought in terms of medicine. They thought in terms of legislation, of jurisprudence, of common law. They thought in terms of mathematics, astronomy, and music. Uh, they were distinctly working with subjects which had to be skillfully mastered. And the real proficient was the person who developed the skills to do these things superbly. And education was to give him the skill, not only to practice the daily sciences known at the time, but also the skill to reorganize, redeem, and perfect his own life. Everything was therefore a, a rather a highly educational program, intensely directed toward the person who, having gained what education he could in the world in which he lived, desired to go on and learn more, learn more about how to perform specific tasks, learn how to build a better ship, learn how to rediscover and use the lost secrets of Tyrian dyes, learn how to perfect chemicals and drugs, learn how to uh, perform delicate surgery on the human body, to learn chemistry and physiology and anatomy. All these things came as part of the Hermetic doctrine, overtoned, however, by the great concept that all knowledge was sacred. Therefore, that the physician and the judge and the lawyer were actually priests of a universal mystery. And the Hermetic philosophy points out that the end of all of this knowledge is to discover the wisdom and the exactitude and the goodness of divine providence. Thus, it uh, is quite conceivable that the Hermetic physician could be of interest and value today to a great many persons. Perhaps our modern scientists are deficient principally in the hermetic overtone, this overtone 
that science is divine. That the scientist is not one who must build a religion, but rather a man who must experience the imminence of all divine matters in the very exactitude with which he daily works. Now this in substance, I think, is the perspective of Hermetic philosophy as distinguished now from these other groups that we wish to discuss. Now what is the perspective of Gnosticism? Not long ago on Sunday morning we gave a discussion of the Gnostic ideals of Valentinus. Uh, therefore, we will assume that many of you heard that. We will digest it a little, but try to cover the ground for those who did not hear this lecture. Gnosticism, which arose in both Syria and North Africa, in the uh, first century, within the first 30 or 40 years of the Christian era, had one peculiar disadvantage from the beginning. It was never a completely united system. Gnosticism was always at least a three-pronged instrument. Gnosticism was broken up at a very early period into sects. In fact, what we know as Gnosticism together, altogether, is practically a union of sects initially divided. Thus, instead of having a system strong around a central core, or a central teacher, or a central leader, we have a dozen or more groups with various backgrounds and various religious doctrines with which they were attempting to create the Gnostic position. We know the word Gnostic from Gnosis to know. It was a search for knowledge, but essentially the Gnostic was a religionist. Instead of being a scientist, he was a theologian. He was attempting the same principle that dominated uh, the Hermetic philosopher, but he was working upon an entirely different concept, namely that through the extensive interpretation of, clarification of, the theological and religious structure of the time, he would find the true, actual, eternal, and universal faith. That he would come into possession of the true religion, the one religion. Early in his experience, therefore, by the very diversity of his background, the Gnostic began to be a student of comparative religion. He began to think not of one faith alone, but of many faiths. And in the schools of Gnosticism there were followers of many beliefs and many religious systems. The only answer to this, therefore, was the recognition of the unities underlying spiritual revelation. The Gnostic believed in revelation. He believed that the final source of knowledge was the power or grace of God bestowed upon him so that he might know as an inner or spiritual certainty those things which could not be comprehended by the intellect. Therefore, he practiced visions. He practiced certain forms of magical rites and ceremonies. He invoked deities. And he sought to gain the intercession of divine powers and the advancement of his material uh, state or the continuance of his spiritual growth. The three great schools of Gnosticism that have descended to us, the Syrian under Simon Magus, the Egyptian under Basilides, and the 
other Egyptian school on the Valentinus constitute only three of probably nearly a dozen branches. These represented again, however, a very peculiar level of thinking. If the ancient was not inclined to be scientific in a large way, he was not also inclined to be theological in a large way as the Gnostic understood the term. For example, the average Roman, the average Alexandrian, the average Egyptian or, or person of the area certainly could not discourse learnedly on comparative religion. Western man could hardly do it until the last few centuries. It was not common for the believer in those days to have any interest in beliefs other than his own. As we mentioned last week, the state religions, uh, the various gods ruling areas and provinces, uh, formed the background of the theologies of local groups. They seldom went beyond these. And it had, had it not been for Rome, probably the whole concept of comparative religion would have been greatly delayed. But the Roman Empire, by conquest and colonization, forced this study upon the dawning mind of European man. Gnosticism, we will say then, was represented by little groups, probably a hundred little groups, divided into eight or ten schools. These little groups consisted of a teacher, something like an oriental yogin, or master of the Vedanta system, a saintly person. This saintly person was surrounded by disciples. These disciples in smaller areas might be a dozen, in larger areas perhaps a hundred. But it is very doubtful if during the rise of Gnosticism that the total body of the Gnostic order ever reached more than two or three thousand. It could not for the simple reason that it demanded a kind of thinking that was strange to the time. It demanded the individual devote a great deal of personal labor to the contemplation and interpretation of things. It made it necessary for the believer to examine the various aspects of the deity he worshipped, as these aspects were found in the uh, religions and beliefs of maybe a dozen other nations. This kind of contemplation was not for the marketplace. It was not for the individual who was busy in the merchandising of his daily profession or trade. Thus the uh, Gnostics almost immediately became ascetics, wandered into the wilderness, separated themselves largely from the communion of other persons of other interests. They were content to be devout, content to contemplate and to meditate, uh, to pray and to examine the secrets of religion as they understood these secrets. Naturally, under this uh, pattern, they did not have the staying power because they could not touch the popular mind. They could not touch the majority of people. <clears throat> it's probable that even in their own day, the Gnostics were regarded as mysterious, as being persons set apart, strange, perhaps even mad. Their thinking was not in the terms of prevailing orthodoxy. The Syrian Gnostics had trouble with the orthodox Jewish religion. Later, the Christian Gnostics had trouble with Christianity. 
the uh, one link between the Gnostics and Christianity uh, that remained strong for a considerable period of time was the link of the teachings of St. Paul. Uh, the Paulian group were very was very close to the Gnosis, and many of the Gnostic teachers quoted St. Paul as being the outstanding example of the uh, teacher of their time relating to the mystery of Christianity. Now the Gnosis moved towards Christianity, and Christianity certainly enveloped phases of the Gnosis. But there was always a conflict there that could not be completely reconciled. The nearest point of reconciliation being in the works of Paul. In Gnosticism, for example, the principle of redemption was an eternal principle, ever functioning. The principle of redemption in Gnosticism was unhistorical. It was known to the first man and it would be known to the last man because redemption was an attribute of eternal deity itself. Redemption, therefore, did not center upon any historical time or historical person. Gradually, in the Christian Gnosis, an effort was made uh, to apply this redemptive principle exclusively uh, to the person of Jesus. The Gnostics made a valiant attempt at this, but when you look in perspective over 18 or 1900 years, uh, the patchwork, uh, the, the tragic difficulties which their philosophy or religion passed through in this effort uh, to combine itself with another doctrine, these difficulties become increasingly apparent. Uh, the historical redemption concept was not Gnostic, and the Gnostics who attempted to follow it did so with a good spirit and a good heart, but never consistent with their own original teaching. Thus Gnosticism uh, was a religion seeking a universal experience of God. It was a little bit in the feeling of the teachings of Akhenaten. It was this sudden bursting forth of the realization that there was only one God. And that this one God was the God of the friend and the enemy, the God of races and nations, and had an existence beyond all attributes, all terms, and all names that could be bestowed upon this divine principle. Immediately, the Gnostic deity begins to emerge, and we are in the presence of a universal, eternal, unchangeable principle of mystery. Mystery, however, which is penetrated primarily through religion. Uh, a mystery which is approached by utter humility and complete devotion, seeking always that mysterious hour which no man knoweth, the hour when the grace of God shall richly descend upon the individual. Now Gnosticism, having created a perfect God, or having conceived one, found itself upon the horns of a dilemma. Because from this perfect God it must explain an imperfect universe. It must proceed to develop the idea of how this God could produce less than itself. How this deity, forever wise, forever good, forever beautiful, uh, could be responsible for the confusion which existed even in Alexandria in the first century. Because after all, man's confusion, like his living, has been eternal. In order to explain this mystery, 
Gnosticism assumed or expounded what is called emanationism. This emanationism is of platonic origin, but its uh, relation to Plato gradually uh, vanished uh, as a factor in thinking. And this emanationism is to the effect that as this resplendent and magnificent divine power, perfect and effulgent in all its parts, is the radiant core, source, and heart of things. Its radiance extending outward forms a kind of halo or nimbus. And this first brilliant uh, nimbus surrounding the mysterious, unknowable core of things, the Gnostics called nous, or mind. They declared, therefore, that mind was the revelation of that which was beyond the mind and above mind and that the creative works of the world were accomplished by a mind suspended from a consciousness, that this mind was subservient to that consciousness, and that this mind ultimately returned to that consciousness, either in the form of the individual mind or in the, co the collective universal mind. Then this effulgency, continuing to radiate outward, like the streamers of the corona of the sun, gradually radiated further and further into darkness, and as it radiated, it became weaker and more diffused, until these emanations of light uh, became less and less powerful and were ultimately absorbed, dissolved, or eaten up by the darkness of space. Therefore, imperfection constitutes that part of existence or creation in which the rays of the central consciousness are not strong enough to control or to blaze through and reveal themselves. And the absolute circumference of existence is matter. And matter is that part of life in which the light has been absorbed until it is no longer obvious or apparent. The Gnostics, being essentially dualists, then affirmed uh, that what we call matter is essentially the principle of evil. That evil is this darkness Evil is the victory of space over spirit. Victory is the, uh, this victory is the inertia, which is at the extreme circumference of action. It is not a central inertia, but a circumference inertia, in which, as Plato points out, if you stand close to the light of the candle, you can read the book. But if you are 20 feet from the light of the candle, you can no longer read the book, because the light is not strong enough. In the same way, if we stand close to the noose, or the source of light, we can read the book of life. But if we are far removed from it, the light is not strong enough and we cannot read. And the minds and bodies of men, having dissolved and absorbed this light into themselves, it is no longer available for immediate purpose of illumination. In this dark circumference, then, the spirits of negation had their abode. And in Gnosticism, it is only fair to point out that they did not actually believe in a principle of evil. They believed, however, in the existence of beings in whom darkness dominated, therefore in whom light was not sufficient. And what we call the bad person, or the demonic person, is the one whose light is so obscured that he can no longer live by it. Thus, uh, the Gnostics had a, a, a very handy and convenient framework upon which to develop a very complicated system of analogies. They were able to prove that the impoverishment of light 
is the cause of darkness. They were able to demonstrate to their own satisfaction, therefore, that materialism is simply the impoverishment of light. That where everything is not light, it is because it has absorbed light, and the light is not strong enough to break through it. Under the Gnostic system, therefore, the great purpose of light was to release the light, was that the individual, through a decision or determination of his own mind, must choose to free the light in himself. He must dedicate himself to such works, such labors, and such, such processes as would so purify and redeem his nature that the light could be released. Thus, all growth was a release of the divine light from within things. This, this concept was also derived from Plato, uh, but the Gnostics developed in, in, into their very complicated eonology, in which they conceived of man gradually, by various disciplines, refining himself, choosing to separate himself from darkness, uh, choosing to overcome the ignorance, which was the opacity of himself so that the light within him could shine through, and that he could release the imprisoned light, so that this light could return to the source of light, the divine aeons from which it came. In order to achieve this, according to the Gnostics, the presence of Nous, or the divine mind, the firstborn of the eternal, gave the discrimination, gave the insight, uh, gave the aspiration and the rationalization necessary to liberate man by an action of his own will. By means of mind, man is therefore forever at the gate of liberation. The Gnostic, however, was not uh, optimistic enough to overlook the fact that mind could also be a destroying power. He therefore recognized a divine mind in the likeness of the Eternal Father, and a mortal mind in the likeness of, likeness of the darkness and that the mind of man accepting darkness was deluded by his own acceptance. But the mind of man yearning toward the light was liberated by his own yearning. Beneath this process the mind was an instrument, but the primary end was a spiritual release, the restoration of a true spiritual state, and mind was therefore sacrificed to the liberation of pure consciousness. Uh, by a voluntary purpose. And the achievement of this purification actually represented a series of Gnostic baptisms. The individual was required to practice the highest form of religious conviction from the earliest time of his association with the order until through renunciation, regeneration, prayer, meditation, contemplation, and through the total sacrifice of all worldliness his truly spiritual nature might be released from the cravings of his lower nature and the light within him could shine through a purified body. Purification in Gnosticism was to be obtained by the practice of the spiritual way of life. The individual becoming no longer dominant, dominated by or bound to matter, verged away from it and toward the light from which he came. It is a, quite an elaborate system but uh, I think the essential principle of it lies in this dualism and the fact that consciousness imprisoned in every living thing is the redeemer of that thing. 
and that this redemption must result from man making a voluntary dedication of his total existence to the service of this consciousness within him. If he did so, then he was truly uh, upon the way of Gnosis. And this way was a series of mystical expansions dominated almost totally by theological concepts, principles, and doctrines. Now, the third of our systems, which we want to contemplate for the moment, is Neoplatonism. And Neoplatonism, in this triad, certainly plays the part of philosophy. Neoplatonism was Platonic philosophy plus the experience of man for 500 years or 600 years after the death of Plato. As we have noted in the previous discussion, the world of the first and second centuries A.D. was a very confused world. A world of disillusionments and despairs. A world in which rationality, in the form of a great system of thought, was not sufficient in itself to meet the needs of a large group of persons. Those by nature philosophical, those who like to contemplate the great ethical structures of life stood in desperate need of a restoration of ethics. And this restoration of ethics, as is usually the case in a corrupt or decadent era, included a more or less violent revulsion against the abuses which then dominated uh, the practices of society and also of education, culture, and the sciences. The Neoplatonists were working with the principle of wisdom. They were elevating not the mind, but something beyond and superior to the mind, to first place in the contemplation of reality. Whereas in Gnosticism, universal deity was the absolute good, in Neoplatonism, the absolute or universal deity was absolute truth. And in this, we have an entirely different premise, although the words in practical experience often seem to become synonymous. They are synonymous upon levels. Uh, the philosopher was working to achieve the experience of that truth which solves all error, or refutes all error. He assumed, therefore, the existence in space of a quality known as truth. He was perfectly willing to assume that this truth was an attribute of deity. But in some way, the Neoplatonic concept of deity was this all-truthfulness. And he would say that if a thing is all-truthful, it is also all-good. Therefore, a thing that is truthful is good. Whereas the Gnostic might have reversed it in the religious position and said, a thing that is good must be truthful. It was a different approach with the postulation of a different end. The uh, mystic of the Gnostic school, seeking this end which is the all-embracing uh, love of God, Whereas the Neoplatonists sought that end as the all-embracing understanding by means of which he himself might experience the state of total truth.
Now he saw truth not from the selfish intellectual desire, as Plotinus very clearly points out. He did not wish to be assumed to know more than other men. He was not of the type who wanted to get up and say, this is the truth. His truth was beyond articulation, in word or even in thought. His truth approached a mystical experience in itself. But whereas one had the infinite believing of the Gnostic, the other had the strange desire to believe through knowing, that the individual could never be sure till he knows. Therefore, the development of the power to know, until this knowledge revealed all things normal and all things necessary, represented largely the Neoplatonic position. Neoplatonism arose then as an effort to link the philosophy of Plato with the need for a spiritual, emotional experience of truth. Uh, this uh, experience of truth could not be merely the transference of information. No individual could say to another man confidentially, this is the truth. Even if it was so, and even if the statement was true, there could be no communication of truth apart from, an, from a dynamic experience which involved the immediate sense of internal knowing on the part of the person to whom the so-called truth was communicated. Truth could never be anything worldly. It could never be the truth about planets or comets or the tides or the seasons. This truth had to be the all truth, which was man's experience of the true discovery of his relationship to everything that exists, including himself. And in order to have this experience, he must also have the full experience of the wonderful world structure to which he was intimately related. He must not only think of God and about God, he must think with God. So, Neoplatonism was this search for truthful thinking, thinking with the mind of God. Thus, as the uh, hermetic philosophers might have assumed God to be absolute law, and the uh, Gnostic school, absolute good or absolute virtue. So, in the uh, Neoplatonic school, God was the continuous state of absolute knowing. God knows all things. God is a state of eternal knowing without center or circumference. That which knows all things notes also the sparrow's fall. God is a universal knowing beyond mind, a knowing which is seated in the heart-mind structure of every creature, so that man is capable of a kind of knowing that is without mind, a kind of knowing that is strangely passionless, and yet when experience is a total experience from which no part of the being can escape and which causes afterwards the individual to say, with a strange finality of revelation, I know. 
Yet this same person could not say what he knows, because his knowledge is not of things, but of the eternal value which lies beneath all things. Thus knowing in Neoplatonism is practically and uh, functionally this internal power to know value, uh, to apperceive or apprehend essential essence in things, and to experience identity with essence. Neoplatonism, therefore, would follow in the Buddhist concept that while man seems to have a mind and seems to have a knowing power, he is actually knowing with the mind of God, whether he knows it or not. And this mind, which seems to be his, is actually an eternal mind, the eternity of which he has not recognized or accepted. Thus, Neoplatonism carries with it a certain pattern of acceptances, acceptances of the presence of value, where it might not immediately be suspected. Now, what was the structure of Neoplatonism in relation to some of these problems with which we are concerned? It is not difficult to realize that when we start talking about essence and knowing, and the power to know apart from the power to think, uh, that the Neoplatonists left the larger part of the Greco-Egyptian world behind them. They were thinking in an entirely different dimension also from their contemporaries. Furthermore, although Neoplatonism had within it a large number of the elements of a religion, it was not essentially religious. It was essentially a descent of the great idealistic philosophy of the classic Hellenes. As a result of this, it lacked many of the elements of glamour. St. Augustine, analyzing it in his own time, held that as far as value content was concerned, Neoplatonism was entitled to become a world religion. It had a tremendous contribution to make, and even Augustine admitted it. But he declared that it could not accomplish this, first of all, because it did not have anything to focus the public mind. It had no appeal. It lacked, as, he, as Augustine pointed out, the first essential of a religion, namely an heroic personality, uh, preferably a martyr that only around this concept have religions successfully been built. The second thing it lacked was a, an offering of a perpetual state of bliss or a perpetual state of illumination to the average man. It did not offer to the average person very much probability that in his lifetime, in the common affairs of his daily thinking, he would be likely to achieve to this state of knowing. It must again be reserved for the person who is willing to dedicate his life, his resources, his time, everything that he has, to the prodigious examination of himself and of his universe, and the contemplation of internal wealth, the wealth of idea, the pure wealth of contemplative induction. Uh, this type of thinking certainly could not be popular. Also again, not only was Neoplatonism a minority group, uh, but it 
drew around itself only a limited number of scholars, most of them not glamorous, very few of them understood, and all of them inclined to express their ideas on so abstract a level of dissertation or of oration or of uh, writing, <coughs> such as the Aeneid Sopropos or Plotinus, that they simply were not comprehensible to the average person. <coughs> Thus we had three schools, all of them essentially deep, all of them descending from old footings, each one of them strangely and wonderfully practical, but all of them deficient in popular appeal, and all of them deficient in obvious simplicity. Too complicated, uh, too recondite, uh, not uh, suitable to move masses. Now at this time, and under these conditions, uh, the relationship between these schools and Christianity can be more clearly understood. Christianity moved into this great focus with an extremely simple moral ethical code. Actually, in spite of the various writings of the early church fathers, who some of them were rather vitriolic on the subject, there is no real indication that Gnosticism, Neoplatonism, or Hermeticism ever actually assailed the teachings of Jesus. They did not. They were quite aware of the ethical integrity the simple and tremendous vitality of these teachings. Each one of them, perhaps in its own way, could have proven these teachings far better than the church theologians could have proved them. Each one had a deep sympathy for the essence. But each was composed of a type of mind that also belonged in a, in a minority group. First of all, these three groups were made up of persons living out of time in a strange way. Uh, perhaps the Neoplatonists were born 500 years too late. Perhaps the Hermetic philosophers were born a thousand years too soon. And perhaps the Gnostic had the unfortunate misfortune of being born at a strategic moment when other things were more important than his own ideas. But all of these groups had a strange uh, lack of contemporary vitality. They were deep. Many of them had descended from the old mystery systems. They had within themselves sciences and forms of knowledge that should not and did not die. But not one of them was in a position to step into the great human tragedy that was moving the face of the Near East and the Mediterranean area at the time. They could not console this average person under loss, under pain, <coughs> under misery, they did not have this power of direct approach. They could take the ignorant man and educate him. They could take the unlearned man and if he wanted to become learned, they could teach him. But they could not take the average person and console him where he was as he was. And because of these situations, the groups fell into a minority relationship to the rising power of Christianity 
which had a tremendous appeal to a very large group of persons under misfortune who wished consolation, who wanted something upon which to build hope and faith immediately, something to sustain them in a very heavy crisis. Now what neither the church nor anyone else could know at that time was that the history of Europe and Western civilization from the beginning of the Christian era to the present day has been one constant sequence of crises. There has hardly been a moment in which the immediate need for consolation was not present. Thus the old scholarly motions uh, fell further and further back, away from the popular mind. And uh, one by one, these older groups or their descendants uh, lost popular interest. And uh, we can say that this situation repeated itself continuously throughout history. There have always been Gnostics and Hermetists and Neoplatonists. There are today. There are always those persons who by endowments of one kind or another are moved into a contemplative relationship with life. There are also others whose nature is such that they are in constant need of the consoling presence of an extremely simple, direct hope. Now, what is the essential reason for this difference? Is it because some people are more sophisticated than others? Is it because some individuals like to be intellectual? Is it that some individuals pose as scientists, and that others still perhaps wish to gain distinction as philosophers? I do not think it is this at all, or any of these factors. They may exist, but I think they exist only as isolated incidents. The difference lies in the psychic integration of the being himself. They lie, the differences lie in the capacity of the person in terms of his needs, of his possible acceptances, and of his inevitable rejections. Some have gone so far as to say these differences arise from chemical biology alone. This I also doubt. But there is no doubt that there is a psychological chemistry in man, and that this chemistry produces different types of persons, due to their own backgrounds, due perhaps, if we believe in rebirth, to earlier existences and previous experiences. But in any event, they are not the same. There will always be, and always has been, a limited group that will think gnosis, regardless. There is a limited group that will think in terms of Hermitism. There is a limited group that will think in terms of Neoplatonism. They simply have these natural instincts. They cannot go against them. For no man can accept that which goes against something within himself. And the differences lie there. And the demarcations and segregations of values lie within the individual. And for that reason, there will always be majority religions and there will be minority faiths. The thing that we can hope is that they do not have to remain forever in antagonistic relationship to each other. That they can be recognized as complementary and not regarded as separating man from man. Actually, in the case of the three we are discussing, uh, they could un undoubtedly have contributed much had they been able to unite 
around the core of the practical Christian need. They probably could have saved Europe the Dark Ages. But because of the lack of sympathy between groups, and because those who do not understand must always be impatient of that which they do not understand, lack of understanding ran instantly into misunderstanding, and, which in t and this in turn led inevitably to conflict. The conflict was one-sided from the beginning, because uh, the number of persons involved in the public appeal was so, so different that none of these minority groups ever really had a chance. Uh, they could not compete. They could not actually survive as such. But we also have to realize that leaders, regardless of what they lead, must of themselves also have attributes of leadership. And in the background of Christianity, there were a number of persons, Christian by conviction and conversion, and yet by nature and mind, scientists, 